This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 245, Size. I'm Hal Hammonds, Citizen of Heaven, your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for listening, rating, and subscribing. Is bigger always better? That depends on what we're measuring and how we're defining big. Wait a minute, am I talking about context again? This week we will cover the real giant who fought in the Valley of Elah, the biggest book I've ever read, and whether it was worth the exercise carrying it to Florida, the Dollar General theory of churches and whether it has any merit, and the most expensive and frustrating error I ever bought and why I don't regret it at all. We'll start with what I've been preaching. The David and Goliath story is literally the case study in little guys beating bad guys. David and Goliath's story is a phrase perfectly understood by people who could identify neither David nor Goliath. The story gives hope to all the little guys out there who, it would seem, face opponents or circumstances far beyond their capacity to overcome. Basketball Hall of Famer Wilt Chamberlain once famously said, no one ever roots for Goliath. He meant that in the context of his ongoing rivalry with Boston Celtics legend Bill Russell. Since Chamberlain was well over seven feet tall and Russell was only six foot eight, it was easy for the casual fan to see Chamberlain as the bad guy, even though of the two, Chamberlain was far more amiable and Russell tended to be a grouch. And even though Russell played for one of the biggest Goliath-like franchises in sports history. So how does David beat Goliath? Well, let's start by not selling David too short, pardon the expression. There's no question who the stat sheet favors in this matchup. However you define six cubits and a span, Goliath was clearly the superior physical specimen, and likely by a wide margin. But David was almost certainly not the child depicted in most of the Bible storybooks. In 1 Samuel 15.38, the Israelite King Saul, who was himself head and shoulders above the rest of the people size-wise, put his own helmet, armor, and sword on David before the young man went to fight Goliath. Now, forget for a moment the preposterous notion that a king would send a child into battle with a giant in the first place, no matter how plucky the lad might seem to be. There's an issue of practicality here. Any article of clothing that would fit a larger-than-average man would never be given to a child to wear. When David says in verse 39, I can't walk in these, I'm not used to them, he's referring to his ability to move effectively, not his ability to move at all. For the story to make any sense at all, David would have to be full-grown, or pretty close to it. I don't want to minimize the significance of a 15-year-old taking on a responsibility like this by any means. But we don't do the story of David's legacy any favors by cutting his age in half. David was a capable young man in his own right. I'm sure God had a hand in helping him kill a lion and a bear while tending his father's sheep, as he claimed in verse 35. But I'm also sure David made good use of every bit of physical skill God gave him. And that's a great lesson for us. We will always be overmatched against the world by conventional standards of measurement like money, influence, and the like. That doesn't mean we should do anything less than our best with what we have. The main point, though, is to not see David as an underdog. The important criteria don't appear on the stat sheet at all. David is the one who is large in character. He's fighting for something bigger than just his own pride and satisfaction. He sees himself as an agent for righteousness, a representative of the one true God. His fight is God's fight. David is the one who is large in faith. Goliath believes in his own gods enough to curse David by them, 
but we see no reason to believe he places any real confidence in them, and why would he? He's accomplished everything to that point through his own ability. What's the point of faith? But David knows where true power comes from. He knows who is truly mighty, and he has confidence that the battle will be the Lord's in the end. And of course, that's the biggest difference. David's God is the true giant in this story. David doesn't have to be large of stature while fighting for God. Any power he might bring of his own is superfluous. Yes, he stopped to pick up five smooth stones, which ironically was four more than he needed. Yes, he slung the stone with all the strength and skill he had. But just as God brought the walls of Jericho down, God brought Goliath down as well. That's the takeaway from the David and Goliath story. Not that little guys can beat big guys, but that we are the big guys when God is fighting alongside us. So take heart. As 1 John 4, 4 reads, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You take the power of the universe into battle with you when you pick up the sword of the spirit. That doesn't guarantee your enemy will fall at your feet instantaneously, but it does guarantee that the conflict will be resolved in your favor in the end. This is what I've been reading. I think, I'm not positive, but I think War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy is the longest book I've ever read. It was a special opportunity. I was going on vacation for a week with the family, and instead of bringing a book for every day, I figured why not just bring one book? And it worked to perfection. We were literally taxiing up to the terminal on the return home when I turned the last page. Reading War and Peace is something all serious readers should do at some point in their lives. At least that's what I've always been led to believe. And now I can check that one off my bucket list. Yay me! But now, on the other side of 1,500 pages, or as I like to say, a missioner and a half, I'm wondering if I derived any other benefit, and whether the sense of satisfaction derived from just completing the task was worth all that effort. I'm trying to work this all out in my head. Is War and Peace a good book? Yes. I enjoyed the various stories of Russian families, how they interacted, how they dealt with adverse circumstances, how peasants became noblemen and vice versa, how disaster brings out the best in some and the worst in others. The characters were real and lifelike. It sometimes felt there were too many of them to keep up with, but at least they don't all have three or four different names like in Crime and Punishment. Thanks for that, Mr. Tolstoy, I guess. And I believe there's a certain value in completing a difficult task simply because it's difficult. If I start a jigsaw puzzle, I will finish it. Overcoming frustration and distractions is half the reason I started the puzzle in the first place. It's a character builder. And War and Peace is such a seminal work that it likely helps put other books in focus as well. If you have no experience with Romeo and Juliet, for instance, you won't get the full experience when you watch the film West Side Story or any of a hundred other adaptations of Shakespeare's famous play. I haven't yet gotten the impression that skipping past War and Peace has hindered my understanding of Western literature in general or any particular book, but then maybe that's because I've been skipping past War and Peace. That said, there are a lot of character-building exercises I could have started, finished, and written podcast segments about in the time it took me to finish War and Peace. At some point, completing an exercise for the sake of completing it becomes an exercise in futility or even ego. You say you like books, huh? I bet you've never even read War and Peace, have you? I have a similar attitude towards certain books of the Bible. 
I've said for years that Zechariah is the hardest book in the Bible for me to read. I'm not alone in that. In fact, I'd venture to guess that plenty of people who would vote for Leviticus or Revelation have never even tried to read Zechariah. If you've never read Zechariah yourself, read it this week and prove me wrong. I wasn't entirely serious with that last comment. Yes, read Zechariah. But don't read it just because it's difficult, or because it's the one you've avoided for years, or because it'll make you a better Christian than all those slackers that haven't read Zechariah. Read it because it's God's message to you. It contains information about Him and His plans for His people. Properly understanding it will help you properly understand books written in a similar style, including Revelation. It'll give you a view of Jesus on the cross that is unlike any you'll get from any other book. And here's some extra good news. By minor prophet standards, it's on the long side. But by war and peace standards, it's tiny. You can read it casually in a half hour or read it studiously in a few days. And if at the end you're left like me at the end of war and peace, not quite sure what you just experienced, wondering if you missed the point entirely, guess what? You can read it again. And you don't have to block out an enormous amount of time to do it either. And also, unlike War and Peace, you know ahead of time that your effort is absolutely worth it, that you will definitely be a better person for having made the effort. We can argue about how much of a genius Leo Tolstoy was, but there's absolutely no question about the wisdom of God. As Paul writes in a very different context in Romans 11, 33-36, Oh, the depth and the riches, both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God! How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This is what I've been hearing. My friend Terry Francis has a theory. He says small churches are like Dollar General stores. They serve a close community. They cater to the short-term needs of the people in the area. But at some point, you need to build a Walmart. Walmart does all the important things Dollar General does, and does them better. A certain level of convenience and comfortability is sacrificed when you go to Walmart. But it's worth it to have better selection, quality, and service. I realize talking about Walmart in terms of quality and service is going to raise a few eyebrows, but work with me here. I don't come up with the theories. I just share them. Community churches are like that in the sense that groups of a few dozen are really good, at least they have the opportunity to be really good, at creating a warm, inviting fellowship. It's a home for the families that have been attending there regularly for decades. The churches develop personalities of their own. But there's a fine line between a church that's united in opinions and practices and a church full of cranks who can't get along with anyone else. Comfort and convenience can be emphasized to such a degree that those who perceive themselves as outsiders are compelled to leave that church and start another, where a slightly different personality can be developed and cultivated. Over a period of decades, this can produce a somewhat ridiculous number of church buildings and church signs in a general area, all of which are populated by small groups completely comfortable in their own skin, none of which show any real sign of becoming anything bigger or better. And the bottom line is, these Dollar General-style churches, if you'll excuse the terminology, are self-limiting by their nature. 
their ability to have age-appropriate Bible classes, pay off the debt on the building, fully support one or more gospel preachers, or even appoint a crop of elders and deacons. All these issues and more besides may never even come to the table for conversation because of issues relating to size. Now, if a few of those churches would choose to combine the resources and form a single Walmart-style church, a lot of the shortcomings could be addressed. But far more often than not, in fact, almost without exception, churches don't do that. They are not willing to sacrifice the comfort and convenience they've come to expect from the smaller group for the possibility of something different but better. I agree with Brother Francis, at least I mostly agree. The Lord's Church is not given to Christians so they can feel comfortable exactly where they are. We're supposed to grow as individuals and as a group. Growth brings on growing pains, no doubt about it. But those pains should be embraced and dealt with as the natural consequences of being a living, vibrant organism. We should no more want to stay a church with double-digit attendance, come what may, than want a child to remain perpetually 10 years old for fear of issues that come with adolescence. Learning how to deal with brethren from different backgrounds, with different points of view, with new ideas, new skill sets, that's what being the body of Christ is all about. When selfless Christians sow the fruit of righteousness, peace will ensue, according to James 3.18. It may take a few awkward years, or even an awkward generation, but the Holy Spirit guarantees results if we are patient enough to wait and humble enough to yield. But I'll add a caveat to the Dollar General theory and I strongly suspect Brother Francis would agree with me as much as I agree with him. There is something to be said for comfort. The local fellowship of believers should be characterized by a palpable spirit of brotherly love. I'm hard-pressed to think of any principle regarding the local church that is preached more consistently than that in the New Testament, from the words of Jesus himself on down to the first love that was so lacking in Ephesus in the days of John's revelation. And the larger the community grows the more difficult it is to show that love consistently. Clicks form. Outsiders go unnoticed. People fall through the cracks. It should not be a necessary consequence of getting bigger, but it is a consistent consequence nevertheless. If you're part of a small group that wants to get bigger, or part of a bigger group already, make sure you fulfill Jesus' word in John 13, 35. Be known to the world by the love you and your brethren have for one another. Create and maintain that small church feel, no matter how big or small the church gets. Growth is needful. Love is needful. Don't sacrifice one for the other, in either direction. This is what I've been playing. In our early days of collecting board games, the Hammonds family found Rise of Augustus, or simply Augustus in some circles. Recently, the game's been re-implemented as a game called Via Magica. I haven't played Via Magica, but I'm told everything about Rise of Augustus of Significance is preserved in Via Magica, except the theme. And frankly, the theme is pretty stupid. The game is great, though. So if you can't find Rise of Augustus, I'd recommend giving Via Magica a try. Anyway, in Rise of Augustus, you're drawing discs blindly out of a bag, trying to match icons in a small tableau of cards in front of you each of which is worth a certain number of, you know what, forget, forget all that. Let me start over. You're playing bingo. That's what you're doing. And when you complete one of your cards, you get a certain number of points for having done so, and you draw another one. The game ends when someone gets their seventh bingo. 
except instead of calling out bingo, you're supposed to say Ave Caesar. You see, the cards are showing your success in exercising control over various Roman senators and various districts of Roman rule across the empire. You're Augustus, and you're rising, I guess. Like I said, the theme's pretty stupid. In fact, the girls insist on yelling out, Hi-ho, Cheerio, instead of Ave Caesar. That's how seriously we take the theme of Rise of Augustus. All that said, it's an easy game to teach, easy game to learn, and a whole lot more fun than bingo. The drawstring bag from which you take the discs is about five inches square, not big at all. And literally, the entire game can fit in that bag. The draw tokens, the enormous stack of cards, the cool little soldiers you place on the cards to show which bingo squares you've crossed off, all of it. And yet, Rise of Augustus came to us in a box about a foot square and four inches deep. Not an abnormally large board game box at all, but way, way bigger than it needed to be. And it's not difficult to imagine why. Small box games typically sell for around $20 to $25. Big box games typically sell for twice that or more. In theory, that's because of the cost of materials and shipping. Big things cost more, all things being equal. So if you have a popular, critically acclaimed game like Rise of Augustus, why not put it in a big box? Air is free, after all. If you can sell half a cubic foot of it for $20, why not? I'll tell you why not, because it drives me crazy that's why not. I wouldn't go so far as to say it's crooked or deceitful, but it's certainly wasteful. I'm wasting money. I'm wasting shelf space. I'm wasting time whining about it every time we get it out to play and boring my family stiff in the process, no doubt. The only redeeming aspect in the whole mess is we've probably played Rise of Augustus 50 times over the last six or seven years, and we've had a blast every single time. The family even lets me win once in a while. So I find a way to get over the discrepancy between apparent size and actual size. I'm not going to have a stroke over an oversized box, no matter what it may look like in the moment. Don't sweat the small stuff. That may seem like an inappropriate cliche, given that big stuff is the whole point of this episode. But what may seem big, even Goliath-sized, may be inconsequential in the big picture. Getting taken to the cleaners by your brethren seems horrible on the surface. But Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 6 that it's meaningless in the context of fellowship and brotherly love. Take the wrong. Let it go. If your knothead brother never comes around, so what? Has God ever forgiven you of selfish thinking or behavior? I suspect so. Then find a way to show that same spirit to others. Don't be so quick to throw every perceived slight into the Matthew 18.16 hopper. Try throwing it into the Ephesians 4.32 hopper instead. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. And if it doesn't look like it'll fit in there, try harder. Ask whether smoothing your ruffled feathers is worth disturbing the bond of peace. Sometimes it will be, I agree, but not all the time, and probably not most of the time. Whether it's board games or your case against your fellow Christian, things are not always as big as they appear to be. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Please rate, review, and share so others can access this content. I encourage you also to join the Heaven Citizens Facebook group. There you will find links to related materials, conversation starters, poll questions, and the occasional special announcement. Also, check out the Hal Hammonds channel on YouTube for even more content. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, 
and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammond's Citizen of Heaven, signing off.